hang your worries at the door and lay here on the ground. Listen to the world doing her rounds. Welcome to the Cora, a podcast that serves as a holding space, a container for the emotional impact of caring and bearing witness to trauma. We'll learn from workers and experts engaged in practices of care who may encounter traumatic circumstances in order to illuminate strategies for stress management and individual growth for everyone. The Cora is held by Dr. Stephanie Arell, a PhD in theological studies from Boston University with a specialization in trauma studies and lifelong dedication to somatic health. And myself, Jessica Darty, a documentary filmmaker and artist focusing on transformative experience through art and dialogue. In this Quora, we speak with Stephanie Duzant, ordained clergy member and theologian with a background in social work about advocacy, grief, and practical applications of theological texts to the grief process. Welcome, Duzant. I'll try to use your last name so folks know which Stephanie they're hearing from. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your path. My name is Stephanie Duzant. I am from Queens, New York, uh, with a Caribbean background. How did I get into social work? I come from parents who were civil servants. My maternal grandparents were uh, ministers and missionaries. I was raised in the AME church. Although I was baptized in the Catholic church, my father was a Catholic. My mother was a Moravian and then became a Methodist when she moved to uh, New York. And so I grew up serving in the church and serving in the community. Um, that, that was important. That's what we did. And so I finished my undergrad and my mother, because she was a civil servant, she said to me, you need to get a job working for the city. And she brought home, I'm going to age myself, she brought home a paper called The Chief. That was a civil servant paper for New York City. All the, the, the news about civil service, all of the tests, civil service tests uh, were in this paper. And she said, child welfare, which is ACS now in New York, child welfare is hiring. And I think you should take that because you work well with children because of the work I did in the church. Honestly, social work was never on my radar. It was never on my radar. I took a job with the city of New York for benefits. When I was a training supervisor, I would tell the story to my training staff. I took this job for benefits. And my goal was to only stay for two years max. That was my goal. But there was a calling to care about my community. And, and because I was in the church, and I want to say, Clergy was never on my radar either until I became a social worker because I was I saw the power of the black church in the community and in the black community. The church has resources. The church has spaces. I was able to develop programming. For the for young people in the community, because I was a part of the church uh, doing that kind of work, going into social work just made sense. It just made sense, even though I tried to resist it because I really didn't like social workers when I was doing the work. When I did child protection, 
I didn't really like social workers because it seemed like they were doing the surface work, putting a Band-Aid on a gash, you know, just sticking to uh, what was the routine. And, you know, that doesn't really help. If we're not going to identify, you know, my mother always used to say, you can't mop before you sweep. You got to sweep first and then you mop the floor because you're just making a mess if you're trying to mop before you sweep. That's what social work looked like to me as somebody new to the field. And so when I went into social work, you know, to get my MSW, my goal was to develop programming that would get to the root of problems so that we weren't continuously mopping dirt. It just made sense. You know, I'm I'm a Christian. And when you read the Bible and when you look at uh, the stories, there was a whole lot of social working going on. Jesus was the master social worker, right? The 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 adulterous woman. You know, I, I just said this to my cousin the other day when I was in the Caribbean. I said, he never told her to stop being a hoe. He told her to go and sin no more, right? And he stood with her as a community was getting ready to lynch her, right? Getting ready to stone her. And so that was social work to me. Identifying the problem. First of all, the community should not condemn this woman because uh, everybody's got something that could be condemned as far as the law goes, right? As far as rules go, that's number one. And then if you are gonna follow through, you gotta make sure that you are in a position to pass judgment. Nobody was in the position to pass judgment except for Jesus, who was standing with her. That's social work to me. Um, It's deeper work than just shuffling the papers and doing the bare minimum. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's more than referrals. It's it's more than making sure we fulfill mandates. It's more than that. Uh, And when people realize that you have more effective work in my 15 years, on my caseload, I had only taken two families to court, whereas my coworkers were in court every two minutes. They would ask me, well, how come you always going up to these schools with the clients? I said, because that's the problem. If we, if we work out what's happening in school, then we can work out some other stuff, right? And also because there's systemic racism in education in New York. And so that had to be addressed. Who was advocating for my black and brown children on my caseload, who are advocating for my poor children on my caseload. And so I went to advocate for them. So of course, sometimes my supervisor would be like, oh, you doing too much, but I did what I wanted to do. And so. (laughs) (laughs) Can you offer an example of what it would look like to advocate and then also what your experience of that was? The the case that really stays with me is a a young uh, Latino boy whose mother died and he was in the care of his aunt. And he was a black Latino, right? I wanna emphasize in a family of Latino folks who didn't look like him. So he was having issues in the family as well as in the school system, right? The family didn't understand why he was having so many problems. If he just would behave, if he just would sit down, you know, so 
I had to really advocate for him in his home and in the school system. So in his home, I had to talk about the differences. He, first of all, he's grieving the loss of his mother, right? Talk about uh, the racism within the, the family structure because he didn't look like that. And so they tried to act like it wasn't happening, but it was happening. And the aunt that he was in care of saw it, right? She saw it. And so she and I would talk about it. And this is how you help him. And this is how you protect him. And which is you, you stand by him. You give him space to grieve. You don't judge him. He's a child. If he didn't, if he looked like everybody else, how would you be interacting with him? And then in the school system, it was race and it was language. And so when I went to the, the meeting, the superintendent showed up at the meeting as well as the principal. And so, okay, let's talk about intersectionality. So in this meeting, I'm the only black person sitting at the table advocating for this black Latino child dealing with systemic racism as well as sexism because the principal was a white male who intimidated the white female superintendent. And I had to call it out. You're the superintendent. He's only the principal. He doesn't overrule you. He doesn't, he doesn't overrule you. And, and so, you know, they kind of told me on the side, you know, where he intimidates us all. He shouldn't intimidate you. And so, of course, at the end of the meeting, he didn't like me and I didn't like him either. But my, my client got what he needed, right, which was service that would help him to adjust to the loss of his mother, living in his family where he's different, being in a school where he's different. Um, and so I had to advocate for that. And I, and, I, and I had to get backlash because it was taking time out from my other cases because I was spending a lot of time going to meetings. And ACS felt like that wasn't really a part of my casework, right? I was just supposed to refer him to services and that's it. But I was like, no, because he'll be right back on my desk within months if I don't help them figure it out. So I think advocacy is getting to the root of the problem, not just looking at the surface, not just looking at what his behavior. What is the reasoning for the behavior? Right, because nothing happens in a vacuum. Once we got to the reasoning of the behavior and also the grieving of the family, because the family was grieving the loss of his mother as well. Right. And so once we get to the root of all of that, then we can interact better. Then we can put stuff in place where everybody can get some healing. I did a lot of advocacy in schools because I watched my mother advocate for my brother. So my brother and I were bussed out to school in Bayside, Queens. So Bayside, Queens is a, a white affluent neighborhood in Queens, New York. And we were bussed out from first grade to 12th grade. So when my brother first got into the school, he was having some issues. They tried to tell my mother he had behavioral problems. Uh, he should be on medication. And so she listened to them, but she knew her child as well. She would go up to the school unannounced. And so she saw things and she saw that they were railroading her son, right? Systemic racism. And so she 
uh, got an advocate from Children's Advocate and they sued the school to clear my brother's record and they won. So the school was very, you know, they would see my brother not coming. Oh, don't touch the dudes on children because their mother walks around with lawyers. I was like, yeah, we do. And and so, so I learned from my mother to advocate for children. Uh, I learned about how racist the educational system was, especially when it came at that time to black boys. It was, well, let me say it was racist to black girls too, but in different ways. But I see what advocating did for my brother. I see that they tried to tell my mother that he had a learning disabilities, but when they took the IQ test, his IQ was higher than the teachers. He, you know, he's like on a gifted level, right? It was funny when he graduated from high school, he graduated with honors. And then when he graduated from Hunter College, he graduated with honors, magna cum laude. And so my mother was like, you need to go back to that school and show the people. <laughs> but, you know, my brother was like, I'm, I'm over that. Let's just move on. And just to see who he is today. You know what I'm saying? He's well respected in his field. He's a federal investigator. He does training all over the country. If, if he didn't have my mother to advocate for him, what would have happened to him? Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me a little bit your, your role with the church and what community you're serving now? I'm ordained clergy. In New York, I had a pastor who, she was a woman. Um, she was an educator. She believed in children. She believed in community. Um, and we worked very well together. And I worked with her for 20 years. When I relocated to Las Vegas, I had planned to still fellowship with church, but I just didn't plan to be on the staff. And so I was fellowshipping with a church, but then the pandemic hit. And so we couldn't go to church anymore. So my pastor, (laughs) she and I talked and I prayed about it. And I said, well, since we're virtual, I'm just going to rejoin the church um, and be a virtual member. She was like, oh, no, no, you're going to be more than a virtual member. And so (laughs) she says, you're going to be the virtual minister now. And so I do virtual stuff. I've also found that I'm doing more counseling because of the pandemic. So I can't really advocate, advocate because it's the pandemic and we're virtual and I'm not in New York, but I do a lot of counseling, uh, do a lot of programming you know, discussions to get people thinking, do stuff for kids. Uh, I did a lot of game programming with kids just because, you know, they were in the house. Uh, I'm always trying to find the practicality in our service and and our belief in our theology. How can we apply it to our everyday living um, and help people use that to get through everything they're going through, especially with this pandemic, especially with losing so many people. I've lost, I lost a lot of folk through this pandemic. Um, I even wrote a blog about survivor's remorse because I left right before the pandemic. I, I, I thought about if I was in New York when this thing hit, I could be, I could, you know, one of my very good, good friends died. Um, And I would have been with her. You know what I mean? I would have been out with her. I would have been doing stuff with her. Um, So I could have had COVID. 
seeing people die. So, you know, so I felt the survivor's remorse. And so I wrote about that. But I, I'm just led by people, helping people. That's, that's what really leads me. Because um, I think that's what Christianity was all about. Community and people. This is something that I've been thinking about and I wanted to ask. At the beginning, I was teaching at NYTS and I was doing an I was doing an MDiv class on human development. Now, you know, the student body at NYTS, which is similar to Union. I had a lot of Latino, a lot of African-American chaplains, people working in churches, people working at nursing homes, some Buddhist students that were doing chaplaincy work in New York. Everybody was losing just exactly what you just described. They were losing congregants, family members. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I'm teaching this class in human development, and this is happening to them in real time. Mm-hmm. And if I think about it now deeply, I, I feel such a sense of sadness. I don't know if I did a great job with them. It's over, so I have lost the control of that. They taught me as much as I taught them in that process, because they were in real time doing what you just described you would have been doing had you been in New York. But one of the things that that's that I've continued to think about related to that and knowing quite a few people that have died as well, just having the context of New York at the beginning of the pandemic, the amount of grief that people have endured and what is going to happen with all of that grief? Now you add to it what's the issues around race and death and race on top of that. Mm-hmm. And a conceptualization that grieving is not just about loss, but about change. The wheels don't stop turning. We're mm-hmm. now into a different gear. So, but but all of it elicits some kind of grief. And so I just wonder what your perspective is on how to manage this grief and and what to do with the level of experience of loss that to me continues to get sandwiched in or continue gets compounded upon by the continued change. Right. Honestly, I think that we try to control grief and that's where we fail, right? You know, at one time when this pandemic started, I was writing names down. And when I got to like the third page and I looked at it and I said, I can't write anymore. I can't do this anymore. Because it was almost like I was just writing the names. I'd write the names and I sit with the names. And then as soon as I heard it, I got to write the names. And so I wasn't really allowing myself to read the names. Right. The name writing became the job instead. And at first I was writing it as a prayer list. Right. Um, But then it became almost like a task, you know, and I didn't recognize until it hit me really hard that I was just subjecting myself to constant, constant, constant pain. Right. And so I stopped making the list. Because my brother would, he'd say, how many names? How many names? And so he was feeling the grief, right? 
Because when we get the names, we go, we cry, we do whatever. But I was like, no, my task is to write the names, to write the names and to pray, to write the names and to pray. And so I had to stop that because I was repressing my grief to do the task, right? So I think first and foremost, we have to allow ourselves to feel the grief. You know, Katie Cannon, Reverend Dr. Katie Cannon, she would say to me, I had to take to my bed. And so I would hear what she said, you know, and then I understood. So there were times I allowed myself to stay in the bed all day. I allowed myself to do that. Because if I don't allow myself to grieve, it's going to come out. It's going to come somewhere else. And where is it going to come, right? And so I've had many friends that have had mental health crisis, trying to manage and control this grief, trying to manage and control the anxiety, right? So I stopped doing that. I stopped trying to control it. Whatever the day brought me, and just to get it out, just to just to, to let the process happen, to let the tears come when they need to come, to let the, the thoughts come, the anger, whatever, you know, all of the different stages of grief, allow yourself to go through it. Because if you try to manage your grief or to control it, it will control you. You can't, you can't stop a memory from happening, right? The fact that you can grieve, that means you're grieving the loss of something that was good to you, something that meant something to you. And so we give thanks for the grief. So let's not try to manage it. Let's sit in it. And so if I need to sit in it, I do. If I need to get in my car and go and drive, I do. You know, just own the grief. Own it, but look at why you have the grief, right? And so how can we use the grief to help us be better? Giving thanks for the grief, holding yeah. space for it. And mm-hmm. it helps me not fear it right. so much. Right. I allow myself to grieve my uncle every step of the way. My uncle worked in public work, so he developed roads. And, and so we'd be driving. And I say, if uncle was here right now, he'd tell you, I do this road. <laughs> so, and, you know, they didn't want to think about it, but they was like, yeah, he sure would. And so let's not sit here and just cry that he's not here. Let's look at what we have with him. You know what I mean? Let's look at what he meant to us and use that to help us deal with that was sad that he's gone. And, and that's how I handle grief. And that's how I, I, I counsel people to handle it. You know? When you are counseling, do you feel yourself taking on the grief that they're talking about if they're letting it out? And how do you process that? Do you end up processing their grief personally or? with yeah. them or what's that cost that emotional you know labor for you yeah transference is real transference and counter transference is real and so i i call my pastor because she's my supervisor and thank god she's got a degree in psychology so so we can have these discussions we can process through that but i also in the moment i try to remind myself of who I am in that space. This is not my girlfriend. This is not, this is not me. I, who am I in this moment when I'm talking to these people? And so it may kick up something for me. I might even have to write a little note to myself, revisit this, or you know what I mean? And I'll journal afterwards and to what kicked it up. 
I constantly remind myself who I am in this space so that I don't get carried away. So I'm also interested in what you brought up about transference. I'm not really familiar what it might mean. So there's two things to think of in terms of that term. One is transference, one one is counter-transference. Mm-hmm. So what those terms describe in a in a dyad when you're working with somebody in a counseling role, I would say in a clear in a clergy or ministerial role as well, what happens is is that there's a an interpretation that the person is closer to you than the relationship is defined as. So for instance, the therapist could experience the client as a family member, or it could kick up an experience of the counselor that is evidence of their own past experience where they want to move towards the client in a way that crosses a boundary that's not defined by the counseling relationship. So I want to parent that person or this person is like my sister. So I remember I was the older sister and I'm going to take care of this person like the older sister. And then a complicating factor is that's also that also happens in reverse. So the client will desire that from the counselor or interpret the counselor as a parent it's not abnormal and it's not pathological, but it it can alter the boundaries of the advocacy or the counseling experience and, and create something that's either unsafe or not ultimately useful because what it really is, is kicking up something that's sort of behind the actual engagement with that person. Right. The boundaries, that's the biggest word in that whole definition in religious counseling it could be touchy right because you're not just a counselor you're you're God's representative you know what I mean (laughs) you're the you're the person that preaches all those good sermons you're the person that encourages the congregants to do better um if you're clergy you may show up to graduations and family functions and so you have to be careful with that counter transfers and transference as well, because the clergy space is different. It's different than the social work space or the psychotherapist space. It's different than the chaplaincy space, right? Because in those spaces, you're only seeing this person once, right? And so, you know, this is why I constantly remind myself who I am in the situation, because you, you can... Sometimes, like uh, Stephanie said, you find yourself in a space of doing stuff and it doesn't help the folks you're working with because you're doing all the work. You're doing all the work. In the evolution towards COVID, I've started to take on roles where I'm I'm not doing any counseling with people, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. more more groups, working with groups and talking to groups about right. the effects of all this. One thing when the transference is starting to occur for me is that, and I was wondering what kind of physical signals you might get, is um, I develop a sense of urgency. And I know when that happens that that something's fuzzy in front of me in relationship to boundaries and that mm-hmm. I have to get to a real um, moderately 
aroused or not aroused space in order to respond. Um, but it's this sense of urgency that gets kicked up that gives me the first sort of signal that this is happening. I was just wondering what your experience is. When I get agitated, when I when my patience is running low, that's when I know it's not it's not good, right? And so I will pull back. I will. I'm sometimes I'll reschedule because I don't want to bring half of myself to the to the work. And because this is voluntary, you know, I don't. I'm not taking on a whole bunch of people. I'm only taking on a few folk. I honestly, I prefer to do group work and I prefer to do advocacy work. I don't like to do the counseling on a regular basis. I'm more crisis intervention. So if I'm working with you on a regular basis and I get a bit agitated, I know it's time for me to step back. You know, I'm a social worker. Right? I got psychotherapy training, but I'm a social worker. We get in, you see a situation, we look for a solution, we move on. And so when you do therapy, it's not that cut, cut and dry. You got to take people through the, the process. So when my patient starts to run low, um, that's when I know, like you say, that fuzzy space. So I need to step back, right? I need to have a conversation with somebody else who can help me stay focused, right? Most of the time, that's my pastor. And honestly, I go to therapy myself. Uh, mm-hmm. Every good therapist has a therapist. If you're if you're counseling folk, you need to work out your own stuff so it doesn't show up in mm-hmm. other people's stuff. I like that you bring that up because in terms of others who maybe aren't in the profession of counseling or are naturally empathetic people, but they don't work within a framework that offers those boundaries. Like mm-hmm. I'm a waitress, I'm serving you water. That is our relationship. You're mm-hmm. not going to treat me like your sister. Um, but, but some people are out, you know, in, in the streets building community without those roles, but they're empathetic people. Empathy is this tool that brings you to the place where you want to offer this space to hear people. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there's a limit to how far you can let that empathy go before that you hit, you hit that boundary. Empathy does not always have to be acted upon. And so you can be empathetic about a situation, but you need to stay in your lane. I think that you have to recognize when to use your gifts and your powers and your influence and your privilege. When do you use that, right? It's not always where you have to boom, get up and do something. No, but you have to recognize that about yourself too. If I get involved, am I going to make it better or worse? Always have to ask yourself that question. If I get it, and, and not just for the person, for yourself. If I get involved, am I going to make it better or worse? Is this something that I need to take on? If I take it on, do I know how long it's going to last? Because you might be thinking you're dealing with just a moment and it turns into a whole situation, Right. And people are calling you every two minutes. And people, oh, well, you helped me before, so I was looking for you to help me again. And so you have to evaluate the situation and make a wise decision. Of course, if it comes to, you know, people's uh, safety or, or, you know, people's uh, well-being and, and your, empath- you know, your empathetic bone kicks up, 
I say get involved, right? If the young lady didn't take uh, the George Floyd situation, what would have happened? Would we have had a conviction, right? And so uh, I love how the community is, is supporting her because she grieved on that witness stand, right? And she grieved during the taping. She held that camera and grieved, right? But she held that camera. And in the end, it helped, right? So you have to think about what, what, what will be the good of me getting involved? And, and what level will I get involved in? You're so wise. <laughs> Both Jessica and I were really intrigued by the alternative Christian text that you that you recognized, and also something I think that we share, which is the insistence that theology can make a practical difference to be relevant. When I got introduced to uh, the early Christian text, it was in seminary. I had heard. You know, my brother was really big into that kind of stuff. And of course, my father's a Catholic, so I own a Catholic Bible, which has Apocrypha in it. Um, but they don't have any different Christian texts, no, no different New Testament texts, right? And so to learn about these other texts, like, you know, books from the Nag Hammadi, um, the Odes of Solomon, which are like Psalms. Um, to read these different texts, um, to read the infancy gospel of Thomas and to read about Jesus as a child, it just gave my understanding of practical Christianity a boost. It, you know, I was like, oh, here it is, because so many questions and to learn the history behind these texts. Right. And so to learn that during the first and second, third and fourth centuries, there was no set rule of how you be a Christian. And, you know, everybody was figuring it out, which is why you have so many texts out there other than the ones in our canon. And, and to see the language, right? That to see that God has breasts that can be milked. You know what I mean? Uh, to see women as the protagonist, the thunder made perfect, to see the voice of a woman, that I am statement from a feminine perspective, to read that Jesus was cantankerous as a little boy. He wasn't perfect when he came out the womb, right? So in the 21st century, to read these texts that can support LGBTQ communities, Text that can acknowledge oppression and that God is on the side of the oppressed. Text that acknowledge feminine as leader, feminine as God. That's a beautiful thing. And, and, and so it just helped me be more practical. I, I tried to be practical before those texts, but those texts really just opened and uh, awakened my understanding of practical theology. And it's, it's not this cut and dry, black and white, cut and paste type of, of mentality that we can move outside the box and that people were doing this. We're not the first ones to do it, that people were doing this, right? And, and so 
Constantine comes along and they say that Constantine was converted to Christianity. But I say, no, Constantine converted Christianity to empire, right? And so, and that, that these texts show that they were fighting that all the way, that they were fighting against that all the way. And so you don't have to believe in one direction. It doesn't have to be this cut and dry uh, belief in God, this cut and dry thinking of being a Christian, right? We don't have to read the text and say that everything in the Bible is right and true or that there's a good reason for everything. No, no. And so my awakening shows me that I can read text and be, be critical of the text and still love God. I can be critical of the text and still profess Christ as my savior. I'm a womanist, so I'm always reading the text through a womanist lens. We can't be afraid to say the texts are problematic. And that's post-colonial readings too, right? To critique the text. Do we see the oppression in the text? Do we see what's happening in the text? And how can we call it out? Faith can be practical, but you have to look at the human dynamic, right? And make it make sense. How does oppressing people make sense? How does killing people you know, how does cutting off somebody's hand because they stole an apple because they was poor and they was hungry? How does that make sense? Uh-huh. Well, he stole the apple and the Lord, you cut off the hand. That's ridiculous. You understand what I'm saying? We have to be able to say that that's ridiculous. And so, yeah, I think it can be practical if people are willing to critique and, and look at the text from a real life living perspective. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that you are saying there's more text than is just in the canon that you're served in, you know, the Bible that, you know, mm-hmm. there's more to excavate, um, ex- excavate the goodness that's useful right. um, from, right. from this centuries old right. <laughs> religion. In the context of grief and managing stress and trauma, mm-hmm. is this book a great resource for answering questions about how to deal with trauma and grief and stress? I tell people that I don't look for facts in the book. I look for truth. I look for the truth that will help me deal with the grief. Uh, Paul talks about it in Philippians, to think on things that are lovely and beautiful. And so I use that text a lot uh, to help people with the grief process, right? Because the grief is going to come, right? But if you take the grief and think of why you have the grief, Right. Think of the good things. Think of the the pleasant things. Think of the things that are that that are beautiful about why you're grieving. Now, that doesn't work for everybody. Right. Because everybody's grief is not based around, you know, these wonderful relationships. Right. I then will use the Psalms. Because the Psalms allow you to speak how you feel. And when you read the Psalms, you know that everything was said in the Psalms. They're mad at God. They're mad at people. They don't know why they're going through what they're going through. They're mad. And so, God, I need you to kill them, kill their mother, kill their children, kill everybody comes down, right? And not saying that that's right, but saying that you're allowed to have your feelings. So when you read the Psalms, you're allowed to have your feelings, but just don't stay there. Because right behind the Psalms, what's the book behind the Psalms, right? Which are the Proverbs, right? So... 
right behind saying how you feel comes wisdom to deal with how you feel. You know what I mean? You can find truth in the text. You know, don't look for facts, right? Because it's not, there's historical reference in the book, but I don't see it as a historical document, meaning you go there for all historical facts. No, but you look for the truths that come out the book because it is the sacred book, a chosen sacred book of a body of people. So a sacred book means you're finding the sacred truths in it, not just facts. Right. Yeah, the religion shouldn't shouldn't make you feel bad about who you are. You your belief system should help you live a better life, not a fearful life. And you have to be willing to explore historically, right? Church history matters, right? And so what's going on behind the text? Why are they writing these texts? What was happening at the time? What was trying to be done? What was the Nicene Council's objective was saying what books were orthodox and what books were not. You know, you have to you have to know the history. And then you have to make an informed decision, right? And if your decision oppresses people or is okay with people being oppressed in the name of Christ, then you're off. And that's that's bad theology. Period. I'm I'm writing a book now called Bad Theology. Period. That's bad theology. If you are okay with people dying, with people with people suffering in the name of Christ, quote unquote, then that's bad theology. And I want no parts of it. And, and God is grieved. God is not pleased when people think like that. When will that be finished? I, I'm glad you asked me. <laughs> that means I, I'm, I'm pushed to finish it. I'm, I'm trying to get it by the fall. I'm really trying to get oh, it out. Wow. That's awesome. Arel, how would you describe your approach to reading the Bible and how you use it in your work? I'm teaching a class on scripture and pastoral care, and I said yes to teaching the class for myself because I want to start taking a closer look at how, how the stories can help us either challenge what's happening in the world around us or offer us resources spiritual and internal resources for strength in order to face the world around us. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last piece I wrote on scripture was actually on Rahab and it was about the interpretation of Rahab by rabbis and Christian scholars and how she's so qualified as a prostitute. And yet she was so much more. And she is in fact, in the genealogy of Christ, but how, she is read through a male gaze as a prostitute who's somehow saved by her lineage. When in fact, that's not the case. She saved the lineage. <laughs> she saved the lineage. That's right. That's right. Wouldn't be a lineage without her. Right. Wouldn't right. be the people. I mean, yeah. So that's such a great example, right? Thank uh, you. This was really beautiful. And yeah. Very nice and lovely to see you, but also um, soul-filling for me. I'm I'm so glad to meet you. Same here. Same here. Thank you for asking me um, to do this. Uh, I think that it's important that we look at how we use this work, how we use the text 
to help people be better, to help people get through. And I love the fact that you're you're going to interview people from different perspectives. Thank you for listening to The Cora, a podcast created by Dr. Stephanie Arell and co-hosted and produced by myself, Jessica Darty. To learn more about The Cora, please visit stephaniearell.com. The main theme song for The Cora is Bones by Jen Lindsay. The Cora is produced by Shrine 13. For more, visit shrine13.org.